Well, here in Luke 2, we've got uh, some more information about, about Mary. And I want to continue the things that I was saying about Mary uh, in, uh, in the talk we gave on, on Luke chapter 1. And what I said then when we talked about Luke 1 was that Mary was an unusually spiritually minded young woman. I suggested that she was illiterate, that literacy rates in Palestine were very, very low, uh, 2-3%, and women generally were nearly all illiterate, particularly a young woman, and particularly a poor woman like, like her. Most women were married by the time they were 20, so therefore... I think we can assume that she was a, um, a teenager who had a, a huge knowledge of God's word, which she must have committed to memory. And I made the point that when the angel comes to her and said, you are highly favored, and the angel says that to her twice, this is really using the, the Hebrew word for Hannah. You are the Hannah-like one. And so she responds to that by reeling off this Magnificat, this song of praise, which is full of allusion to Hannah's song of praise when her prayer was answered. And so the point that uh, I made was that because she knew God's word so well, as soon as she was given a cue, she was given a prompt by the angel coming and saying, you are like Hannah, she grasps that immediately and responds. And I said that, uh, therefore, when we read the Bible and sometimes we think, well, I didn't get anything out of that, that's not quite the point. The point is that insofar as we are full of God's Word and we're trying to live our life with the Bible as our compass and our guide, and we simply have a heart for God and we love God's Word, somehow life starts to make sense when we get those prompts, those cues through circumstances in life that are, that are brought into, us, into our lives by, by the angels. And I also suggested that Mary actually wanted to have that child, that she had prayed to be the mother of Messiah. And that's why a lot of the things she says in Luke 1 are really words of gratitude. Thank you, she's basically saying, that you heard my prayer, that you took notice of me. And the way that she rejoices when the angel says, you are going to be pregnant, uh, not by a man, but by God, she doesn't think, oh no, you know, I'm engaged to marry Joseph, and what's he going to think, and what's my family going to think, what the village people going to think, what am I really going to tell people? I'm the only woman in all history who got pregnant without a man. But instead she rejoices. And I would argue that psychologically that joy that she has is <clears throat> only really understandable if we accept that she really wanted to be the mother of Jesus. And so you see a huge spiritual ambition in this teenager. This illiterate poor woman who was hedged in and framed in, you could say, by, <clears throat> by all the situations that were around her, her poverty, her gender, her situation in the backwater of Palestine, which was itself the backwater of the Roman Empire, that she was able to rise above all that. Now, here in Luke 2, there's a number of things that happen, which you could say that if she understood the Scriptures would have actually been an encouragement to her. And if she didn't uh, appreciate the scriptures, 
they would have not been an encouragement, they would have been very negative and hard for her to handle. Here in Luke 2 verse 2, we see that uh, this birth of Jesus happened at the time of the census that was made. Now, when she comes out with her song of praise, she's not only alluding to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, she's also alluding to all sorts of psalms and all kinds of other, um, <clears throat> other Old Testament scriptures. And she's always alluding to the Septuagint, which was the, the common language, uh, the, the, the common Bible, if you like, that, uh, that people would have used at that time. <clears throat> and so, here in uh, Luke 2, verse 2, where we're told that Jesus was born at the time of the census, she may have grasped the relevance of Psalm 87, verse 6 in the Septuagint, talking about Messiah, in the census of the peoples, this one will be born. Well, if she had known that verse, and, as I say, when she makes her song of praise, she's full of allusion to all kind of psalms, and we looked at some of them in the study on, on Luke 1, she would have twigged that immediately. Uh-huh, census. Oh, well, Messiah's going to be born at the time of a census, according to Psalm 87.6 in the Septuagint. And then there was the whole shame of not finding anywhere to stay, and all the hotels sort of saying, no, 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 won't, uh, can't have you, etc., until eventually one guy says, yeah, well, you can uh, sleep out and have your, have your baby with the animals if you really want. Jeremiah 14, verse 8. This was addressed to the Lord and Saviour, of Israel, the hope of Israel, which was, was a person, um, ultimately, in Christ. Why are you like an alien in the land, like a traveller who stays in lodgings? <clears throat> Same word in the Septuagint. For the inn where Mary gave, gave birth. And then Isaiah 1 verse 3, again in the Septuagint, <clears throat> the ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows the manger of its Lord, but Israel has not known me. Now, that word there in Isaiah 1 verse 3 for manger, Fatmeh in the Septuagint, this is the same word that we've got uh, here about the birth of Jesus in a manger. So, on one hand, there she was with all the, <clears throat> the nervousness and worry that comes from having your first child, being far from home in a strange situation, strange environment, uh, chronic lack of hygiene, there you are, no one will have you in their inn, their hotel, and you haven't got money, and there you are having your first child. We can imagine the, uh, the huge stress that the poor woman or poor girl really would have been under. <coughs> and there she was with oxen and donkeys looking on, uh, giving birth in the pain of labour. And as the contractions came on and on, she realized, well, I'm going to give birth with a bunch of dirty animals looking at me. And she was giving birth in an animal's manger. And that Isaiah 1 verse 3, the donkey knows the manger of its Lord. I mean, really, <laughs> you almost think that a, a donkey might have said, hey, look, that's my manger. What are you doing there, woman, giving birth to your child? As if the donkey walked up and sort of looked at her like, well, that's my manger. What are you doing there having your contractions? 
the donkey knows the manger of its Lord, but Israel has not known me. So on one hand, it would have all been very negative for her. But on another hand, on the other hand, according to her knowledge of God's word and her perception of it, which undoubtedly she had because her song of praise in Luke 1 is full of allusion to the Old Testament scriptures. Um, <clears throat> according to that appreciation of God's word, actually that most awful traumatic situation would have been an encouragement. And the same was true for Jesus, when a lot of the things they did to him in his final sufferings, they plait a crown of thorns. I mean, his mind would have been back in Eden, thinking about the, the thorns, and the, how he eventually was to bring an end to that curse. And all that kind of negative, if you like, uh, abuse of him he would have understood on a higher level and I dare to believe would have taken encouragement from it and so in this we see the pattern for us we who in our lives have a whole uh, a sequence of trials and, and difficult situations that we face it depends how you take them and how you take them depends upon your biblical perspective and in this we see, I think, the, the value of the Bible, that it is God's word which is our guide and which is the ultimate way of finding perspective. Now, Luke 2, verse 19, Mary kept God's words within her and <clears throat> she pondered them. And the Greek word translated ponder in, there in verse 19 comes from sin, with or together, sin balain, to throw. She threw things together. It's as if she combined scripture with her experience of life. And so she found meaning. And she was able to attach meaning to events. And that is, I think, what is so urgently needed for every single human being, to attach meaning to events. It's that lack of meaning which is the problem. People have awful problems and traumas in their lives and they go to psychologists and the psychologist doesn't physically take away any pain. The whole process of psychotherapy is to help a person towards understanding, towards attaching meaning to event. Now, she didn't have any psychotherapists on call, as it were, but she found that meaning and that sense from the perspective supplied by God's Word. And this is why later on, when somebody comes to Jesus and said, um, Oh, what a blessed uh, woman you, ha you have as a mother. Blessed are the breasts which you sucked. He says, Well, no, blessed are they, like his dear mother, who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the same word about her keeping God's word in her heart. That is the, that's the way to find meaning in life. And this, as I say, is the value of the Bible. And once we cut ourselves adrift from daily, regular Bible reading, and particularly reflection and meditation upon God's Word, then life does lose meaning. Now, we're here to uh, focus, really, upon the, the death of Jesus. And we have a, an insight into that in verse 35 when she comes to Simeon in the temple and uh, Simeon blesses them and says to Mary this child is set for the fall and rising again possibly resurrection of many in Israel yes a sword will pierce through your own soul also 
that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now the Syriac text there in verse 35 for sword actually has spear. And the reference could well be to 2 Samuel 23 verse 7 where in the prophecy of Jesus David says that he would be pierced with the staff of a spear. The staff of of a spear implying that it went in very deeply. We know from John's account of the crucifixion that that is what happened and blood and water came out and for blood and water to have come out um, for the water to have come out uh, the spear thrust must have been very deep and so he says here that that's going to happen to this little baby when he's bigger and when that goes in and pierces him it's going to pierce your own soul also Mary now that is understandable that the sufferings of a child are felt almost exactly, almost in the body by, by the mother. And there she was at the crucifixion, uh, beholding the spear thrust. Now, of course, you could say but uh, Jesus sort of sent Mary away from the cross before that. Well, it was really right at the end when he says, Woman, behold your son, implying John now is your son. And I wondered if he because he couldn't motion with his hands in the crucified position, whether he uh, made some signal with his eyes. He, you know, John, uh, over there, he is now your son. Woman, don't behold me. Behold him. He's your son. And then he takes, John takes Mary away. And yet the implication is from this verse that she saw the, the sword thrust. Well, I think that it's uh, quite psychologically likely that she would have at least looked back or maybe gone back with John and then turned around and come back to, to see the end. Whatever, I see that uh, she, uh, I would take from this, that she actually did see the, the sword thrust. Now, this was to happen so that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Now the Greek word for thoughts there definitely means the inner, innermost thoughts. And all 13 uses of that Greek word dialogismos in the New Testament are negative. Bad thoughts, vain thoughts, doubting thoughts. And uh, if you want to write them down, Luke uses the word five other times in his Gospel, always talking about negative thoughts, thoughts of doubt, bad thoughts. Uh, the references are Luke 5, 22, 6, 8, 9, 46, 9, 47, 24, 38. So then, the point is that insofar as we also, in our own minds, reconstruct the scene of the crucifixion, here we will find our innermost thoughts revealed. And this is why there is the connection made between the breaking of bread and self-examination. And the question is often asked, well, what should we think about at the breaking of bread? Should we think about the, the crucified body of Jesus, or should we think about our own sin? Sort of make a list of uh, where we can improve, etc. Well, I think the answer to that is most clearly we are there to think about Jesus, not about ourselves. And yet, insofar as you reflect upon him there, quite naturally and inevitably really, you find yourself engaged in the process and the activity of self-examination. And it's this self-knowledge which is very difficult for people to come to. Know thyself, you know. 
Um, and we find this very difficult to, to really come to that knowledge because, unfortunately, we have so many other issues that distract us. So how can we really get in touch with ourselves? How can we get a grip? Well, we come to the cross. This is the purpose of sustained meditation upon the crucifixion. That by doing that, and by reflecting time and again that he died for me, for the forgiveness of my sin, you cannot be passive. A person can never be passive ever again, knowing that the Son of God loved me, as Paul said, and gave himself for me. And quite naturally, you will know yourself. The thoughts, the innermost thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. Our sin is revealed. If we are breaking bread properly, and if we are focused upon him there. Now, just in passing, um, God says in Zechariah 14, They shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son. They shall look upon me, whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Now, a lot of Bibles uh, have changed that, because it doesn't seem to make sense. The pronouns seem to be out of kilter with each other. Surely it should say, they shall look upon him whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for him. But what the text says is, they shall look upon me whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for him, that is for Jesus. Now the me, in the context there, is definitely God. So, in a sense, in the piercing of Jesus, God also, as the Father, was also pierced in his soul. And you see here a beautiful and a unique insight into the relationship between the father and the mother of the crucified Jesus, that both of them were pierced. Here in verse 35, Simeon says that the soul of Mary would be pierced when the soul of Jesus was pierced. And Zechariah 13 says that the soul of God was pierced at that same time. Now that is, I think, a beautiful and, and surpassing insight into the strange relationship between God Almighty, the God of the whole cosmos, the whole of existence, and the woman who began as a, a barefoot teenager in the backwater of Galilee, who loved him, had a heart for him, and so wanted to bear his only begotten son. <clears throat> now then, we've said then that the cross leads to the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. But the same word for revealed is used about how thoughts will be revealed at the day of judgment. It's particularly clear, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 4, verse 5, that in that day, the things, the hidden things of darkness will be brought to light or revealed. In that day, everything is going to be open and revealed. And yet, we have a foretaste of the day of judgment right now, in the sense that, the thoughts of our hearts are revealed right now as we break bread if we are focusing upon him there and that's why when Jesus was preparing to hang upon the cross he said now is the judgment of this world that in a sense that was a foretaste of judgment and insofar as we come before him as he was there and as in a sense he is now insofar as we do that within our own hearts right now we have a foretaste of the day of judgment. And therefore, that future that stands in front of us, that final destiny point, 
of meeting with him at the Day of Judgment loses uh, something of its mystique, loses something of its enigma, loses something of the, uh, the terrible fear that I don't know how it's going to work out. We do know, because God's judgments are revealed right now, all throughout his word. His word is his judgment. And we come before Jesus, and sure, the, the, the negative thoughts, the doubting thoughts of our hearts are revealed. But then we look at him, and the simplest message is that he loved me, and gave himself for me, so that in his death and resurrection, I also will find my death and my resurrection.